Hello everyone and welcome back. The largest annual human migration on planet Earth is now over and after a lovely couple weeks of calm and quiet, Shanghai is back to its normal raucous self. To get things kicked off in the year of the monkey, today on the show I am speaking with Eric Walenza-Slabe, director of Startup Grind Shanghai and founder of IoT One, a platform devoted to promoting the adoption of industrial internet solutions. I wanted to have Eric on the show not only for the interesting work he is doing and the unique experiences he's compiled during his time in China, but also because as director of Startup Grind, he is very much plugged into the startup community in Shanghai. Unsurprisingly, Eric tells me that the interest in joining the events he organizes and hosts has grown tremendously over the past couple of years, and I probe him for some insight into what kind of people are attending and what they are hoping to gain by doing so. We also delve into his latest project, IoT One. And have some fun speculating on what the future holds for an increasingly connected world. Eric came to China at a young age and worked hard to establish himself in an industry that he is passionate and enthusiastic about. As the story of China's tech boom continues to develop, there will undoubtedly be many young people from all over the world coming to China to get involved. And Eric had some great advice on how to do just that. Of course, I posed a number of my favorite questions to Eric also, and he had some very practical, even some unusual advice, and lots of other great nuggets of wisdom throughout. So I'll make my exit to the right, and please enjoy my discussion with Mr. Eric Walenza-Slabe. Welcome to the Tech in Shanghai podcast, the Pearl of the Orient. Shanghai is the city of the future. All systems go full steam ahead. It never stops. Technology, innovation, ambition—it's everywhere. Join us as we explore this new world and talk to the people making it happen. The Tech in Shanghai podcast. The future is now. Eric, thank you for joining me on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time on a cold and supposed to be holiday at the tail end of the Chinese New Year holiday here today to、uh, share your time and share some of your experiences with me.、Um, so why don't we get started? Why don't you tell me how you wound up in People Square in Shanghai in 2016? Just a brief kind of synopsis of your your story. Yeah, sure. So、uh, I first came to China in 2006. Um, teaching English outside of Nanjing in a suburb.、Um, at the time, I just graduated with a philosophy and political science degree, and I knew how to read books very, very well, but not that much else. So I thought I should just get out into the world and, and have a look around. And I、uh, remember when I was standing on top of our our teachers' lounge,、uh, or the on the roof, and looking out in the distance, you could see probably fifty construction cranes、uh, uh-huh. putting up buildings, and I'd never seen anything. Like that, anything approaching that in my in my life.、Uh, so I, at that point, I decided I'm gonna、uh, make China part of my future.、Um, I ended up going to Korea, Japan, Nepal, spending some time in different countries,、um, doing doing different things, and eventually made it back to China in 2011. And I've、uh, been settled in since. And why originally China in 2006? Well, actually, you know, all the places was, to go. Yeah, no, it was、uh, Costa Rica originally.、Um, so I went down there with a, a few friends when I graduated.、Um, I went there because it was beautiful. I'd been before. I knew people.、Uh-huh. Um, I came back. I would say still not quite knowing what I wanted to do, and、uh, I just、uh, was at a Fourth of July party.、Um, met a woman who had just returned, and she was just telling me stories about China,、uh-huh. about the culture. I looked into it, and, and really, ten days later, I was on a plane. I, You know, I found a job online.、Um, they offered me,、uh, you know, a position. 
Um, and you just went to where it was. So yeah. it was outskirts of Nanjing. Okay, fine. Let's go. Exactly. So I just showed up and nobody, you know, uh, made my way over from the metro station. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was fun. It's funny how many people that we've had on this show have similar, like, China entry stories. You know, very few. And, I mean, maybe this is a testament to the kind of enterprising, risk-taking um, personality that, that a lot of the people on this show embody. But... Very few people that I've spoken to came on like your typical two to four year expat package and everything was set up and it was a nice cushy lifestyle and they just inserted themselves into a corporate culture. So many came like on a whim, on a bet, on a, I don't, you know, I don't know, just randomly, why don't I, I go to China and just washed up on the shores with very few plans in place and very few ambitions just to see what it's like. And those are the people that, you know, compiled a lot of really interesting China experiences and then, you know, flourished into entrepreneurs or executives or a variety of different uh, interesting people. So when you, you taught for a couple of years in, in Nanjing? No, for six months. Um, decided I'd, I'd had enough after six months um, <laughs> of teaching in any case. And yeah. so then I, <clears throat> I went over to Korea. Um, uh, the reason was that I, I met a good friend in... Um, in Nanjing, and we decided that we wanted to attempt a motorcycle ride from uh, from China over to Europe, mm -hmm. um, and we knew it would take a bit of money, and uh, we were not making it up there. So I thought, well, I'll go to Korea. They pay well. Uh -huh. uh, work there for six months, get to see a new culture, experience a new culture, save up a few thousand bucks, and then I went back and met him, and we uh, we, we headed off. And oh, you did gave it. it a, no, we did not do it, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we, we made it um, through... Um, through Tibet, right? So we started in Sichuan, mm -hmm. uh, or not in Sichuan, in, um, in Yunnan. Made it into Tibet and then down into Nepal, which was an incredible ride because I they bet. were literally building the highway as we were going. Uh -huh. So it was all mud and, and uh, puddles and, and rivers running through the, the road, and there were people on the side camped out, you know, building. And we would only go at, at night, so we'd ride from like uh, 10 p.m. until 2 a.m. Uh -huh. because foreigners are not allowed to go there. So we had our uh, surplus army um, clothes on and our helmets, and then we would just duck under the, um, you know, the levers to, to you know, close off the roads. Uh -huh. um, and we made it down into Nepal. Um, but when we made it there, we, we met friends, uh, made new friends, that is. Um, we decided to I volunteer. <laughs> exactly. Well, we decided to volunteer, and, and we thought we'll, we'll hang around for a couple weeks. Uh -huh. A couple weeks turned into eight months, and we ended up spending wow. all of our money basically building toilets in this little town. Amazing. And you then, spent eight uh, months in Nepal. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I did a month there in um, six weeks, I think, in uh, 2005, 2004, 2005. Yeah. Uh, where were you? In Barbasi. So Barbasi is... Um, in, in relation to Kathmandu, where is that? Let's see. Barbasi is just uh, 20 miles over the border from Tibet. Oh, okay. Yeah, in the north. Cool. Yeah, and you north. did eight months there. I, I read a little bit about what you were doing. You were kind of building infrastructure, you know, toilets, schools, that sort of thing. I exactly. So the initial thought was um, the Maoist uh, insurgency had just calmed down. Yeah. And for the first time, tourists were returning to the region. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a beautiful region where two rivers meet, and there's a, a large boulder overlooking those and a little, little path going up the mountain. And we thought, well, we'll build a guest house there, um, and we'll use the revenue as kind of a continuing source of, uh, of money to fund programs down in the, in the town. Uh -huh. We got what we believed were permission from the relevant. The, um, there's 
a community group that manages the forests. Um, so we started construction of the roadway and so forth um, and the foundation. And then there was one individual, kind of a, a government bureaucrat, who started asking us for money. And um, it, it, we had some friends there, and they said, no, we, we can solve this. We're, you know, we're well connected with the Maoists. We'll just go and, uh, <sighs> you know, and then have a talk with this guy. But then we thought, well, if our options are either, you know, paying this guy a bribe or, or threatening him, neither of them are really something we're, we're really comfortable with. Right. So we decided, let's just do something nobody can ask for a bribe, which is building toilets. And it, in, at that point, we, we'd both been sick for uh, you know, quite a while um, because really probably only 30% of the town had toilets in their homes, so people would go out on the streets. So we knew what a health issue it was because right. we were kind of living it. So we yeah. thought, this is something practical, uh, it's doable, and, uh, and hey, nobody can, can kind of stop us here. Right. And so, I mean, I want to move on, but how did that manifest? I mean, did you literally just build toilets throughout the town? or That was pretty much it. Uh, there, was, <laughs> there was one guy that had um, built, <laughs> started this program uh, a couple years ago, and he had over about a two-year period built about uh, two-thirds of a toilet across the river. And they, they were like, yeah, he put about $100,000 into that. Into two thirds of a toilet, um, and you know, and obviously he was just taking all the money and pocketing it. Right, right. But he was basically going out and selling himself as like I'm going to, um, you know, I'm, I'm I'm helping the city by doing this. And so he'd get all these people to donate money. He'd get agencies, aid agencies, to donate money to this, and he'd build uh, slowly build this this toilet. And we thought, well, a toilet's a pretty simple thing. We knew an architect down in uh, Kathmandu who was doing some really great uh, work, and he gave us some some advice. And we thought, well, really, okay, we're not going to build a complex thing. Basically, people are going to shit, and it's going to go in the river, but that's better than it being on the streets, and it's better than, you know, and a woman now is going to have a room where she can go to the restroom in and doesn't have to kind of uh, find a bush, right, to hide behind. Um, So it'll be safer, and it'll be cleaner, Um, and that's what we did. It was the the simplest uh, solution to the problem, Uh Um, but, uh, you know, we we just built them basically until we ran out of money. And are we talking like Western porcelain toilets or squatters? You know, because squatters, yeah. Um, no, squatters with basically uh, a door and, and three walls. Right. And um, yeah, just plopping them up on, along the river. Awesome. That was it. So then fast forward, you, you did that, that period of time in, in Kathmandu, wound up back in China, and then kind of bring me up to speed on the work you've been doing up until what you started, I think, in October last year, which we'll, we'll crack into in a second. Sure. Um, so I came here and picked up a, um, some project-based work with a consultancy mm-hmm. uh, when, when I was doing my MBA. Yeah. Uh, when I graduated, they took me on full-time, and I basically worked with them until um, early 2014. Mm-hmm. And then I, I had been playing with an idea for a long time, and the need was basically that you know, when you talk to executives um, mid-management at uh, multinationals, they're repeatedly identifying hiring as one of their major issues, right? Um, and I thought, well, there's a lot of consultancies that are addressing the executive in the mid-level, but not many that are addressing the, uh, the entry level. Mm-hmm. So let me see if I can come up with a solution that will help uh, college students bridge the, the, the divide and make it into corporate careers. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, whether, and we decided eventually not to focus on the multinationals, but actually to focus on investment banking and consulting. Uh-huh. Um, and so I basically I ran that for about 10 months in 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually hit uh, a series of uh, events and difficulties that uh, made us decide, my wife and I, to decide not to continue the business. And we, we closed it down and sold it off to a friend for uh, you know, a few thousand dollars. And then, um, 
I went back to consulting actually until I started up this this more recent business. Right. Um, and before we crack into that, can I just ask you know again, we, we, you came in 2006, and then the the period in Korea and Kathmandu. Uh, what was the main reason you came back to China and specifically Shanghai? Like, was there one compelling reason that 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 made you decide to come back? I I did not want to live in America, mm-hmm. so I wanted I, I enjoy living in different places. Why, I like why not? It, I I find it more interesting, right? I, right? I think going to the supermarket here is interesting. Taking right. a walk on the street, everything is interesting. Uh-huh. Um, so that was basically it. And then I surveyed my options, and I thought, well, if you don't want to live in America, you want to live somewhere foreign. What are your options, right? Um, there's beautiful places, um, but I thought, well, China's going to be the story of the, you know, of this century, century. So yeah. China will be the place. Yeah, and then Shanghai, just no brainer. This is where this is the most kind of cosmopolitan, you know, comfortable happening city in China. Uh, no, a bit by chance. So my MBA program had a. Um, a, a JV, not a JV, just a, a joint program with Fudan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I ended up over at Fudan. And right. it was during that time when I uh, found work with this consultancy. And so it was a bit by chance. Actually, I was thinking it, it would have been interesting to have moved directly to Chengdu or to a Western city and spent uh-huh. some time over there. But once you build roots, I think it, uh, there's a cost to moving. Sure. Um, and so now you're involved in a, a project mm-hmm. called IoT One, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe you can introduce us all to to what that organization, that that business is all about. Yeah, sure. So IoT One, uh, I think the the simplest way to think about it as is as a combined Alibaba and Wikipedia, specifically for the industrial IoT yeah, sector. Mm-hmm. Um, Alibaba because we highlight vendors and products, and it's basically a, a platform where an end user, a corporate buyer, can identify vendors and products or solutions that um, address their problems. Mm-hmm. Um, Wikipedia, because the technology and the space is new enough that most people on the end user side are not up to date with the terminology. And so they need, once they identify a vendor or identify a, a technology or a use case, they often need to dig into it a little bit mm-hmm. in order to understand uh, what the terminology actually makes and then kind of interpret it. And so then we've, we've built on um, a terminology module mm-hmm. and uh, some graphics modules to help them basically do some background research. Yeah. Now, this is a super <clears throat> fascinating phenomenon that's currently underway, IoT, the Internet of Things. Um, is this, you know, the platform that you've launched, which I, I had a look at recently, is it geared towards um, kind of senior-level executives or multinationals so that you know because they aren't always the most tuned in to like the the most current innovations and how those innovations might impact their their businesses so is this a platform to educate them as to what's going on and then how what's going on is going to uh, impact or influence their their businesses yeah that's right so our target audience would be uh, management or or um, so from mid-management through the executive uh, and absolutely individuals who are not necessarily um, technical, mm-hmm. who don't have a strong technical background, or whose technical background was maybe 20 years ago. They perhaps were an electrical engineer right. and now have kind of graduated into the executive ranks, but they're not up to date with the current technology. And what we've found, if you survey uh, you know, Google and find out what content pops up, right, and you're going to find that there's a lot of non-structured content, a lot of blogs and articles, Mm -hmm. and then there are fact sheets and data sheets. And so there's basically 
uh, either a very technical deep dive, which most individuals aren't going to be able to make their way through, mm-hmm. um, or there's more thought pieces, which are often inspirational and interesting, but they don't help you make an investment decision. Mm-hmm. And what was the, the impetus behind launching this platform? Is it because you have a particular interest or passion in, in IoT, or because you saw that this was you know a gaping hole in, in bridging the gap between you know, large multinationals and existing businesses and the, the innovation that's kind of sweeping over or about to sweep over various industries. Yeah, right. Uh, a bit of both, right? So after I shut down my previous business, I reflected and thought, oh, well, I do want to start another business, but then I'm, I'm going to have to do it in a, a bit more of a thoughtful manner. What, what were the reasons that I shut down this previous business? One of them was that I had identified, which I, I still believe is a, is a good business opportunity, it is not an area where I was I was passionate about. Right. And so it wasn't an area where if I didn't have work to do, then I was going to be uh, reading, I was going to be um, talking to people in this in this sector. And mm-hmm. that was a mistake. And so then I started you know, surveying my own behavior and seeing, well, where am I spending time reading? Who do I want to talk to when I'm, when I'm killing time, when I'm traveling, when I come across somebody? Right. And this is one of those spaces. And so I thought, okay, that's a criteria. It needs to be a space where I have an innate uh, kind of passion for the area. Yeah. And then it also has to be a space where I'm coming in early enough that the growth in this particular area is going to be over the next 5, 10, 20 years, that I'm, I'm not entering a mature area where mm-hmm. I'm competing against people that have established businesses. Right. It's, uh, you know, what you just mentioned, I think it's a topic that comes up a lot. And I always talk about it as being one of the most kind of noble objectives in in someone's career. And that is to attempt to align, you know, what stimulates you, what sets you on fire, what you what you're doing in your free time, as you mentioned, what you're, you know, what you have a million tabs open on Chrome as a result of whatever that is, trying to align that with what your professional work is, because then, as you say, not only are you doing it in your professional life and you're working on a day-to-day, but when you're chilling at the pub or when you're sitting down with your, your spouse or girlfriend or whatever, you're also talking about it. So you're, you're always just by default enhancing your ability to understand these things, to speak about these things, to integrate these things. And I think entrepreneurs that are able to do that in combination with drive, ambition, ability, you know, all those other things that we talk about a lot, I think that really enhances the likelihood of of success. Now, before we move on from that, you know, Internet of Things is something that is pretty buzzy over the last couple of years, but as I think you rightly say, and as perhaps a reason why you've launched uh, IoT One, is that it's, it's not yet uh, well understood it's you know a lot of people don't know how to approach it yet and it's still in its infancy in, in terms of its development and, and use cases but can we geek out for you know just a few minutes on internet of things like what do you see in the next five ten years as the impact of internet of things on our day-to-day lives hmm. no good question so in terms of our our day-to-day lives in the next in the next few years, I don't think we'll have an enormous impact. I mm-hmm. think there's going to be a lot of very interesting technology coming to market that that a, a certain group of people are going to have a lot of fun playing with. Right. Right. Um, and that's good because that's going to create some some niche markets that people make some money, um, and they'll companies will survive and they'll be able to continue innovating. Mm-hmm. I think on the uh, on the B two C side, it's going to take some time before they start developing technologies that 
uh, mass groups of consumers feel like they cannot live without. Right. Um, so I just asked my, my colleague here who was given a um, Amazon Echo, right? do you use your Echo? She's like, well, my Echo, you know, we played with it for a while, but really everything that I can do on my Echo, I either use my remote control or my cell phone to do, and I always have my cell phone with me in, right. in my remote control. It's pretty close. So it's a little bit of an incremental improvement in, uh, in efficiency or in convenience, but there's nothing there that it can really do right now. It's not now. revolutionary yet. Exactly. Yeah. But, but I think that point will arrive. Sure. Uh, maybe in, in, yeah, in five years or so, we'll start to see some of these. Now, in the automotive sector, um, we might see that much more quickly, right? right. So I think the, the estimate was uh, two-thirds or so of, of new cars in the U.S. will be connected in this year, in 2016. Wow. Um, and so connecting is the first stage, right? But once you connect them, then you can start to have them communicate with each other and not just communicate with your cell phone for entertainment purposes. And you could really see an innovation, a revolution in, in safety, for example. Right. Now, you, all, you studied uh, philosophy in university, right? So let, let, me, let me pose a, a more philosophical question to you. What is the, basically what the Internet of Things is, in, as far as I can tell, is we're, we're essentially bringing consciousness to the, the, the things that we interact with in our lives. You know? So if we can look at the Internet as a form of consciousness that we all contribute to, I don't think many people would argue with that. Uh, so far, it's been contained to computers and mobile devices. But now we're going to imbue consciousness into all the different things that we interact with on a daily basis, chairs and cups and tables and desks and machines of various kinds. Philosophically, once this has uh, had time to develop, not early stage where you might have an echo or a tide button on your washing machine or anything like that, but in 20 years when we have you know, seamlessly integrated a global consciousness into the physical world surrounding us. What are your thoughts on, on, on that? <laughs> well, I think it's something that we need, we need to think about it, right? Uh -huh. We need to start planning for that because it's, it's going to happen and most people don't know that it's going to happen. They're, they're not thinking about it. It, mm -hmm. it will creep up on us. And particularly, perhaps, policymakers because they tend to be older, right? Mm -hmm. And because they're older... They're like my father, who's like, you know, okay, teach me how to use this WeChat thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that means that they're going to be inherently a bit behind in uh, catching the adoption rate, right? Mm -hmm. um, well, I think it's a, I, it is a concern, right? I, I forget who said this, but um, I remember being pointed out once that technology often moves slower than we expect it to, but it moves more radically, right? So often um, your um, maybe it's not going to be 20 years, right? The connectivity of the car, for example. Mm -hmm. um, we can foresee where that's going, and we might expect it to proceed more quickly than it actually will because we can, we can foresee where the end technology will, will arrive at. So we, because we can foresee it, we believe this should happen quickly. There are other cases that we cannot foresee, um, and they are going to happen, and those are probably uh, the the ones that we should be concerned about. And we have to make sure that we're having conversations and not just conversations in technology circles, but conversations among policymakers, among right. society at large, because we're going to have, for example, millions of, of drone, uh, drone, drones in the, in the air, right? Mm -hmm. um, what are the implications of, of that, right? Of being, some, 
somebody can place basically matter wherever they want across the city, and, and matter, of course, includes explosives and other other dangerous things, right? So yeah. we have to be able to kind of plan for these. Um, we're, we're probably not going to regulate them out of existence. There's so much upside. Yeah. Um, so how do we control the, the risk? You bring up a, an interesting point, and I think it's a point that is becoming more and more relevant because, you know, you mentioned the, uh, and that's a great quote about technology, that it often develops more slowly than we expect, but more radically. I think that that's what you said. But, you know, the the current, there seems to be a, a diverging uh, congruency between, you know, our ability, our current political system, policymaking system, to adopt or enact um, supportive policies quick enough to accommodate the rapid, the accelerating pace of innovation. So basically what I'm trying to say is here is, you know, innovation, whether you want to look at, you know, Moore's Law or the, the, the just tracking trends in, in various uh, industries is accelerating, it seems. But, um, you know, perhaps even exponentially in some areas. But our ability to understand and, and make policies around uh, many of these things which do need some form of regulation, as you were just mentioning with, with drones and things like that, can't scale as quickly. So what is your kind of take on on how that dynamic will unfold as the, the technology continues to accelerate but the, the, the policy is not able to, the policymaking is not able to accelerate as quickly? What, what, what kind of circumstance does that leave us in yeah right no i don't know interesting area right so i think if you look at uh the case of drones and automated vehicles for example those are places where because the end uses are well relatively well understood the the benefits for example in automotives in terms of safety are well, relatively well understood um those are moving i would say fairly quickly maybe not as quickly as we'd like to see but but fairly quickly through the uh, the the you know bureaucratic process right? mm-hmm. um, it, drones then the, the the security concern is on the other side of the equation it's a it's a net negative um, the positive is efficiency so then I think you get into um, areas where it's going to take longer to work out where drones are acceptable and it's going to be uh, much more muddled right but then I think there's another class of uh, technologies that get uh, involved in ethics. And I think those are the ones that are, are really going to be difficult, where technology is going to move much more quickly than right. the policy. And that is, for example, and stuff. genetic engineering, right. right? I mean, it's gonna, it's possible, and there's so much upside that somebody is going to do it, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, North Korea, they get picked on a lot, but, uh, you know, does anybody really think that if they have the opportunity to um, improve the intelligence of their scientists, they won't take that opportunity, right? right? Um, so that, that technology will develop, it will be be used, and the question is, is it going to be used by medical tourists who are going to a hospital in Thailand to, to have the procedure done, mm-hmm. or is it going to be done in the United States in a regulated environment? But because there are ethical issues there, I think those are the issues where, where tech, you know, the, the, uh, the change in, in government policy is going to lag far behind mm-hmm. the technology. And last point on that, what... If, if that's the case, if that is how things unfold, what happens then? If, if you know, these, if, if because of the ethical nature of, or in this example, the ethical nature of, of technology advancing rapidly and the inability of the, the legislative bodies to, 
to make policy around it, you know, just take that one step further. What what does that mean? Does that mean, as you say, that these technologies get put off into jurisdictions where there's not as much formal policy, and as a result, perhaps they're not as well regulated and not as safe? Or just what what kind of dynamic unfolds there? Because it's something I I, I'm, I think about quite a bit as things accelerate. Right. Well, I, okay. So on the safety side, I think it, it does mean that technologies will be implemented in areas that have uh, less strict regulation. Right. right. And so there's going to be more safety issues. Uh, it's a business opportunity for uh, those businesses, businesses that are able to act in that environment um, or, or work around the, the policies because of the nature of their technology. Mm-hmm. Um, if we look, for example, at the automotive sector, which is not as controversial, there's a very large business incentive uh, for governments to move quickly, right? Because if the U.S., for example, gets automated vehicles on the road two years, three years earlier than Japan, uh, American automotive um, OEMs are going to have two or three more years of mass data about how these vehicles interact. Mm-hmm. Right? Of course, okay, then Japanese vehicles also sell in America, and they'll, they'll be able to take part in that market, but it's not their home market. Right. Uh, so um, they probably won't receive the same amount of benefit. So there is also a very big benefit in a government um, being a first mover and enabling their domestic uh, companies to be, to be first movers. So mm-hmm. I think in some of these areas you'll see um, also corporations being, you know, lobbying very, very hard to, to get their technologies um, on the market right. uh, quickly because uh, not just you know not just related to their 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 profitability but it's related to the success of their industry. Yeah, I think I was talking with a um, uh, a man about China Info One Hundred, uh, which is a new organization. I think it was formally launched in February two thousand fourteen, but really not active until uh, late fourteen, uh, early fifteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's basically a network or a platform of, I think, maybe 70 now, but I guess the 100 refers to 100 experts. Um, <clears throat> and these are people from academia, people from government, people from business, and it includes, for example, you know, senior executives at Alibaba, Baidu, Tencent, and uh, so very high-level individuals across the board. One of the um, platforms or one of the programs that they're, uh, they're, they're driving and that they're advising the Chinese government on is investment in autonomous vehicles, right? And the reason is that China absolutely lost out on the OEM, on the vehicle manufacturing front. Um, They they allowed JVs, and because of that, they created a situation where foreign brands can come in and make a lot of profit without really investing in innovation in China. And so you really don't see any uh, successful competitive Chinese automotive companies. Mm Um, they want to change this, and the way to change this is to uh, take advantage of this new wave of technology, which creates a, a brief opportunity gap where if they can uh, be early movers and, and get these on the road, uh, they will have the opportunity then to develop a, a competitiveness in this new area mm-hmm. where all the old IP of the, of the foreign automotive you know, manufacturers is not as valuable. Right. Um, so I think uh, governments are aware of this. Um, but again, there's some areas, and um, well, okay. So the Christian, the the religious countries, they have to grapple with this. They have to grapple with the fact that they have a, a certain set of beliefs that are often going to run contrary to some technologies, and they're going to have to figure out how how to resolve those. Right. Countries like China, I think Asia in general, often has a more pragmatic set of underlying beliefs that's a little bit more flexible yeah. in dealing with new technologies. Cool. 
Um, you're also involved in Startup Grind in Shanghai, right? Are you the what's your what's your involvement with them? So I and uh, my then girlfriend, current wife, um, hopefully hopefully future wife, <laughs> um, and uh, and a friend started up Startup Grind in uh, in, in Shanghai in 2013. Right. And what's what's you know I've, a lot of people have heard startup grind, but what's kind of the mission statement or the purpose of, of startup grind? Uh, startup grind is um, it's a network of entrepreneurs, uh, investors, other people that are interested in the area. Mm-hmm. The way I look at it is, entrepreneurs need to leave the office; they need to socialize, right? And so we create an opportunity for them to socialize with with other people that are interesting, right? So. Um, when I the reason that I started um, startup grind in uh, in Shanghai was at the time I was thinking well I want to be uh, learning from communicating with um, building relationships with a certain group of people mm-hmm. and if I go to um, you know random club X I might meet that person but more likely I'm I'm not going to right I'm I'm going to have a few drinks I'm I'm going to uh, <clears throat> meet people that I'm not necessarily interested in meeting. It's a very chance uh, chance situation. Um, so I started looking around for networks that have the right community, and I found Startup Grind on meetup.com, and they had 100 members or so, but nobody had ever hosted an event. So I reached out to Derek, uh, the, the founder, and I said, why don't you host an event in Shanghai? And he said, well, why don't you? <laughs> said, well, okay, <laughs> let's do it. Uh-huh. Um, and so basically we kicked off, and I think we had uh, 40, 50 people at the first event, uh, showed that there was, you know, there was some interest, um, yeah. and built it. And it was basically for us, it's it's building the community that we want to be part of. Right. And you, how often do you host events and, and stuff now? Generally, is it like every couple months or? No, we aim for eleven per year. So okay. we take February off, but otherwise aim for one a month. Right. And it usually comes in the form of, as far as I know, an an, an event where you, you know, host or interview a notable entrepreneur, local investor, something like that, and then provide like a networking time afterwards? Is that how it goes down? It, yeah, more, more or less. So um, people start coming. We, the, the event formally starts at 7. People are usually coming in as early as 6. Mm-hmm. Um, we have wine, beer, food. Uh, so we keep it quite casual, right? So yeah. uh, we also now, around 7.15, we invite in a workshop host. Uh, and that is usually a 30-minute, very practical workshop. And it's kind of an optional thing. We usually locate that in the back. And it's basically for people that are either intensely interested in the topic or who just aren't as comfortable um, grabbing a glass of wine and talking to a stranger right. uh, or, or who don't have friends there. So it's a, it's a way for them to get engaged without uh, kind of taking that leap. And then 8 p.m. we kick off the um, – we call the fireside chat, but basically the the discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we maybe do that a little bit differently here, and that we try to keep it um, quite informal and, and kind of keep the audience engaged throughout right. uh, the discussion. And what you know, the to most people's eyes, the the startup community has over the last you know two or three years even has seen a lot of growth in China, but and, it, and that's especially noticeable in Shanghai. You know. The number of, of co-working spaces is exploding. The number of people being involved in startups is exploding. Accelerator programs, all this kind of stuff. Is that reflected? You know, Do you get a sense for that in, in hosting these startup grind events? And is there just more and more interest in these things all the time? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at our last event, we had probably 200 plus people. Wow. Um, it was it was just too many. Um, we're actually thinking we have for to. The venue. Uh, yeah, exactly for the venue mm-hmm. and also for the. 200, you don't need 200 people at an event because you can only meet five people and have five good conversations, mm-hmm. right? So um, it's just uh, <clears throat> focusing a little bit further on, on, on quality as opposed to quantity going forward for us. And I right. think that's probably what the ecosystem in generally has to do right. in, in Shanghai and in China is um, figure out how to focus on quality over quantity in yeah. the innovation space. What are, what are most people that come to a startup grind event like – what are they looking for? You know, are they mm-hmm. are they looking to get involved in a startup and trying to meet like co-founders? Are they trying to network? You know, they're you know maybe they're not in the community yet, but they they want to dip their toes in the water. Like, what's what's a a common uh, you know common guest or or attendee at the startup guy? Yeah, about about fifty percent are working for a startup, um, either either founders or or in management. Mm-hmm. Um, we have another 30% are professionals, um, consultants from multinationals, uh, design. Sometimes they are there because they're trying because startups are their customer base. Uh, but generally, it's individuals who are thinking about starting something up, and, and they want to basically vet an idea. They want to meet a potential partner. Um, and then we have another 20, well, let's say 10% or so are from the investment side, mm-hmm. um, and then another 10% or so are, are students. And uh, it's, it's good to see that now students are starting to enter into the entrepreneurial rank. So now um, I, I know quite a few students, actually, who are kind of comfortable with sacrificing their grades and saying, hey, I'm going to start something up, make some money, and, mm-hmm. and, and get my education in that way, which wasn't necessarily true three years ago. Right. And isn't the Chinese government now almost promoting that um, trajectory for, for students? You know, like, you know, there seems to be a lot of... Uh, tacit and financial uh, approval and support for from the government for students to you know come out of university and go right into entrepreneurship. I mean, there seems to be a a lot of support for for that kind of thing in China as a result of you know the last big plan from the government. Or is that yeah, th- yeah. the vibe you're getting as well? No, no, absolutely the case. Um, you could you could argue about the the tactics used to encourage people to start up a company, um, but uh, the the motivation is certainly there. Right. Um, now, being that you're so close in this industry, and as you just mentioned, I mean, you at these events you meet with students and uh, people involved in startups and investors. I want to ask you a few questions about that that industry because that is generally the the uh, the, the subject of this show, and I know a lot of people that listen are either entrepreneurs or would-be entrepreneurs and they're kind of you know still doing that back and forth in their head as to how to get started what to do next steps how to get involved so just want to start right off the bat you encounter a lot of entrepreneurs here and the startup phenomenon is gathering a lot of steam and I I love it and it seems like you do as well and you, you do your best to support it but what are some of the mistakes that entrepreneurs make um and let's let's make it uber relevant in saying when they come to Shanghai and they decide I want to be involved in a startup, and I'm sure you encounter some of these people at startup grind events. What are some of the mistakes that you think uh, they make right off the bat, if any? I think people get captivated by the uh, allure of kind of big numbers in China, right? Mm-hmm. So this market has X number of potential customers. If I get 0.1%, then my, my revenue is, you know. Um, 
and that really doesn't matter, right? Um, people need to understand when they come to China that it's incredibly competitive and they really need to not focus on the size of, of the markets, but they need to focus on their unique uh, capabilities and their, their personal passions and try to identify where they can be competitive, where their niche is. Mm -hmm. um, because as a, as a foreigner, you're in 90% of cases, you are at a, at a disadvantage because you don't understand the culture. Even if you've been here for five years, you really... Um, have a secondary understanding of the culture. Mm -hmm. um, even if you've been here for 10 years, you're probably not fluent um, in the language. And so you need to study yourself and, and do a you know, personal SWOT analysis or something and understand basically um, here are the business models where I as a foreigner having this set of skills and experience mm -hmm. are more, you know, and, and more competitive than Chinese competitors, yeah. right? I have my niche. Yeah. I think that's uh, that's good advice because, you know, there are so many uh, emerging now driven, educated, intelligent, ambitious local entrepreneurs that if you can't, I mean, you, you have to almost have something that they can't have, you know, to, to be able to compete with them because I'm always amazed at, you know, the, the local entrepreneurs I meet and the Chinese startups I engage with, you know, just how fast they move and how much they're willing to sacrifice and, you know, as you said, people become kind of enamored with the startup culture and phenomenon. And I get it, you know, and I appreciate that because people are wanting a different approach to their career. They, you know, they may not want to just insert themselves in X corporation and climb the ladder for 40 years and do work that they're not incredibly interested or passionate about. You know, they want to be involved in a community that is all about doing things that you are passionate about and innovating and being open with your 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 colleagues and your customers and that sort of vibe and there's nothing wrong with that at all but as you say a lot of other stuff it, it becomes a very rosy picture and people go after that more so than going after remembering that there's still a hell of a lot of of work involved and what impresses me about a lot of local startups is they're not interested in all the the rosy stuff you know mm -hmm. the cafeteria with sushi and the you know work fancy office and all that kind of stuff i mean they're just they just want to do the work and they want to do it quickly you know and i i use i often use the example on this show and we discuss kind of even on a larger scale comparing some of the local startups like a dd quaidi versus an uber and just looking at you know how those two compete and the dynamics at play there, but I've I've kind of beaten that to death on the show, so we won't go into that here. Um, what is your favorite part about doing business in in Shanghai, and what is your least favorite part? Yeah, my favorite part, or the the most interesting, mo the 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 thing that incentivizes me to uh, attempt to be an entrepreneur here, is the. The variety of opportunities, right? Um, China is such a dynamic economy and also a dynamic culture, mm -hmm. right? Where the culture is also, you know, as part of the economy or a, a reflection of the economy, it's changing very quickly, right? So there's so many niche opportunities, things mm -hmm. that um, have have developed in an other in another market overseas and and haven't yet developed here, but have potential. Or things that are unique to China and may never develop overseas, mm -hmm. uh, but because of the kind of the the change that's occurring here, they create an opportunity. 
Um, so I, I think from that perspective, it's uh, you know it, it creates opportunity for constant observation, right? What are people doing? What uh, what needs are being unmet? Um, and this is you know again re- the reason I left America. Um, I obviously America also has an enormous uh, amount of opportunity, but it's it's of a different set, right? So mm-hmm. I think you, Shanghai right now is a very suitable place for hustlers, right? Yeah. It's a very suitable place. You don't need to have a big R and D budget. You don't need to have a grand dream for inventing an absolutely new set of technology. Um, but if you are observant and if you hustle, you can probably create a business here. Mm-hmm. I feel like uh, that's not as true in America or in the you know in, in the mature markets that where obviously hustle is important. Uh, but there's in most areas established businesses, um, and you really have to find a. Uh, uh, you know, a sharper knife to get around those those problems than you do in, in Shanghai. Yeah. I, one of the things I often think about is, you know, obviously the economic story in China has developed incredibly rapidly, right? And even if we focus on the consumer market, that's come a long way even in the past five years. Um, if you look at e-commerce five years ago versus today, I mean, I think Singles Day five years ago did like $8 million in revenue, and this past year it did in the tens of billions in one day. Um, but I th- because things have moved forward so rapidly, as you as you just said, I think it, it left kind of like, it created a situation where now there's lots of consumers with lots of disposable income, but the amounts of goods and services um, that in more developed economies would accommodate those consumers has not yet sprung up. I mean, there's still all these holes everywhere that you can see, mm-hmm. you know, where, you know, just because people haven't, it's not that they're not demanding it, it's that they don't know it exists or they're, you know, they, they've, they're only, there's so many new consumers that the, 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 the products and services just have not developed yet. And I think when you, when you were saying what you just said, it resonated with me because this is what I always see. You know, I look around Shanghai, and of course, I mean, Shanghai has lots of ways to spend money, but compared to more developed economies, I mean, there's still so many areas uh, in the consumer space where there are opportunities, you know, where consumers are hungry for new experiences, hungry for new products, but they're just, you know, they're new consumers. There's only so much time. They haven't, you know, come up to speed on a lot of these things yet. And I think that's really exciting, especially for people that are looking at engaging those consumers. Um, well, you'd, your, you'd also ask me the uh, least favorite, the part. least favorite, yeah. right? Um, and that is easily the the internet, right? Uh, <laughs> I was just looking at internet speeds um, uh, across the world, and I think Korea was top at like uh, uh, twenty, um, I guess it would be megabytes per second, and and then the U.S. around fifteen, and China it's it's three point five, but then it's Three point five, uh, you know, without the VPN, if you're if you're working with local uh, local websites, but if you're uh, working with uh, websites that are are banned, then I imagine that's going down to to one or two. Yeah. Um, and so big efficiency costs there, and having running a business where uh, you're cross border and where you have to access resources outside of uh, you know Chinese domains. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to deal with those efficiency issues, right? Yeah. And it, it's, a, it's a natural disadvantage. I was just uh, reading an article about a new Shanghai initiative, which was to pay VCs for losses incurred from bad investments. And so it was a way to incentivize VCs. And that struck me as a great misinterpretation of, of what venture capital is, uh-huh. which is, you know, function toads, like risky investment. Um, and in a great misunderstanding of 
about what China needs to do in order to uh, have successful businesses with global opportunities. That that was the uh, that was the incentive behind this. It was how do we create in China or in Shanghai uh, startups, entrepreneur uh, businesses that um, have the opportunity to expand globally. Mm-hmm. And the answer to that is not to pay venture capitalists for incurring losses by bad investments. The yeah. answer is you need to allow these companies to have equal access to global information. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that there's a lot of reasons not to do that, right? Uh, so it's not going to be a quick fix, yeah. but that is easily the, the biggest challenge that we face. Yeah, it's, I, I second that. Is it not that great Chinese firewall? Is it not, uh, aren't they experimenting with it not applying to the, the free trade zone in Pudong? Yeah, no, that's Is true. that like an experimental area? Like, okay, we'll, we'll let them have full access to the internet here. You know, so anyone who has an office or a company or a home in that area, you're good. Exactly, yeah. Strange. No, it's true, but that area, unfortunately, it's is tiny. only a, a, a <laughs> dot in the corner of Pudong. Um, I know we're, we're a bit tight on time, so I want to run through some, some more kind of quick-fire questions with you. Um, what is your favorite book, and what book, if any, have you gifted the most? Yeah, so I, uh, as I told you earlier, um, thus spoke Zarathustra. Uh, favorite book? I don't know. I think it's probably the most um, influential book. What is that about? I've, I mean, I've heard about it a million times, but I've never read it. It's a, it's a story of this man, Zarathustra, uh, <laughs> um, right? Uh, and basically, it's uh, through telling his story, it's a way to uh, to talk about how people can overcome themselves, right? And I think Nietzsche talks about it as, as man is on this tightrope between animal and God, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're walking this tightrope, and some, some are closer to animal and some are closer to God, and it's through this kind of struggle with ourselves that we move towards, towards God. But basically the, the concept is that um, you need to challenge yourself in order to overcome yourself and to uh, exceed your expectations and to become better, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the reason I like this is that it, uh, it, it discounts the rest of society. Right? I say, okay, there, are, there is an external world that affects you, right? But you can control yourself, and that's about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so focus on, uh, you know, focus on yourself. Don't blame other, you know, other agencies, other organizations. Focus on... Uh, yourself, identify for yourself who you want to be, what your morality is, what your ethics are. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't allow other people to define those for you. Um, and that's uh, that's why it was very influential for me as a kind of a, at a young age, right? Uh, I was reading this, I think, uh, when I was doing my, my philosophy degree in probably 19 or so. Um, I think it's a good it's a good book for uh, for entrepreneurs to read mm-hmm. uh, because it, it helps you to uh, maybe break away from some influence that will, will hold you back. Yeah. Um, as I told you, I don't read a lot of books these days. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I love books. I used to read uh, voraciously, but now really I read um, I, I kind of modern, right? I, I read on electrical devices. Right. Uh, I consume a lot of podcasts, a lot of uh, smaller content. I, I should read more books, but I uh, have not recently. Do you gift any books? And if not, do you, do you recommend any podcasts? Because I know there's a lot of good ones out there. Yeah, the um, IOT, oh, what is it called? IOT Biz? Uh, IOT Biz Inc., I think. Is, it's a podcast? Uh, it's a podcast. Uh, it's the only 
podcast on uh, the industrial internet that I find very useful. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very well done. It's by this man, uh, Bruce Sinclair. So if you can't, if I said the name wrong, then just uh, Google Bruce Sinclair podcast and that'll come up. Okay. And that is something that you, you recommend to people that ask you about IoT or this kind of stuff in general? Exactly. Anybody that wants to learn more about IoT, um, whether it's B2B or B2C, I think he covers uh, very good material. Right. So this is a, a perfect segue into the next question or, or your your comment about Nietzsche and thus spoke Zarathustra or however you say that, that name. Um, can you tell me about something that has held you back or, or has caused resistance in you and then how you overcame that or how you're overcoming it if it's something ongoing? Yeah, yeah, right. Well, probably, probably ongoing. It is... Um, it was very uncomfortable, I think, uh, when I was younger with people I did not know. So it was a, a bit of a strange dynamic because on the one hand, I was very comfortable going to foreign cultures and almost um, talking to people in languages I didn't understand. Uh, but in my own language or you know, getting close to people, doing presentations and so forth, very uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. I think it was when you're, uh, when you're talking to a fishmonger in a foreign country um, there's no possibility of failure, or, or the, the, the you know the, the impact is, is so minimal you don't uh, you don't worry about it. But when you're giving a presentation where you think I should do well in this, right. um, the expectations are high, uh, and so that was something that I've uh, I've slowly gotten over. And I would say now I'm in a lot of situations on a on a weekly basis, certainly almost on a daily basis, where I'm talking to um, people, whether it's um, you know executives and uh, sales calls. Um, presentations, conducting interviews, and so forth, mm-hmm. where I'm putting myself into that situation. Um, but I'd say it's still somewhat uncomfortable, but it's just a recognition that, yeah, I can do it, and the only way I'm going to continue to improve is by continuing to put myself in those situations. Right. So the the method of overcoming it was just saying, screw it, you know, th- there's resistance here or there's fear, so that just means I've got to do more of it. Yeah, and I think often when you recognize that resistance or that, that uh, fear in yourself, that's an indication that you should try to do this, right? Mm-hmm. That uh, you're going to make yourself stronger by, by trying to do the things right. that are difficult for you. Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, as an extension of that, um, you know, ego is something that's often talked about. You mentioned it in, in the questionnaire I sent you before uh, the show, I think. Um, but... You know, ego. A lot of people think of ego as egotistical. You know, where, where you know this big, loud personality comes in and shouts at everyone. But, I, you know, I would argue that's not typically the the way, the most common way, or even the most destructive way in which ego manifests itself. So, as you were just saying about, um, you know, fear of certain things or uncomfortableness with certain things, how do you think? Um, all of our egos, you know, but especially entrepreneurs, can get in the way of, of our success. Yeah, it's a challenge, right? Because um, as an entrepreneur, probably one, one of the general requirements is that you have a certain level of confidence in yourself. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the flip side of that is that when you have a, a great deal of confidence in yourself, you're more likely to discount other people mm-hmm. right? because you're, you're confident in your own opinion. And if they conflict with you, uh, you'll you'll generally opt to to believe in yourself. So I think it's important to to manage that situation, right? And to mm-hmm. understand that on my team, for example, I have uh, people that are fresh out of college, uh, maybe doing their masters right now. They don't have a lot of experience. Mm-hmm. Um, that absolutely does not mean that in a lot of decisions they are better informed than me, right? Because they've been going through the material. And my gut 
intuition or even what I've researched for, you know, previously um, might not be correct. It might not be the most correct uh, option, right? And so I think it's important to, uh, to assess relatively objectively when you are the best decision maker in a certain situation and to say, okay, in this certain situation, I have done the research, I, I have the experience, mm-hmm. therefore I am the, the, the decision maker. But in other situations, although I, I have some uh, intuition of, of what is correct, there's other people on my team right. who are better uh, informed. And I think that um, a fair number of people don't execute this well. I, I think uh, for everybody, it, it's, a, it's a constant challenge. Mm-hmm. And you also mentioned that leadership is one of the most important qualities that young entrepreneurs or all entrepreneurs can cultivate you know, in, in, in themselves. And obviously those two things are very, uh, very tightly interwoven ego and leadership, you know, and there's a lot of examples of kind of the hard-charging, know-it-all, Silicon Valley uh, startup CEO, and a lot of people kind of idolize those, those sort of people, but when it comes down to actually day-to-day getting things done, being the leader of an organization, a startup, whatever, uh, I think, you know, as, as you were just discussing, managing that ego so that you can create a collaborative environment so that you can take the suggestions uh, of of team members is very important. So can I just get you to touch on what you meant by what, you know, not my interpretation of what you meant, what you meant by uh, leadership being such an important quality for young entrepreneurs to cultivate? Like why, why do you recommend that? Yeah, it's you know, simply the fact that when you start a business, you are you're moving outside of uh, the sphere of um, an individual responsible for your your work and and a corporation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, executing tasks, and you're moving into the role of uh, an individual responsible for managing uh, you know managing a team, right? Mm-hmm. Um, creating a strategy that people can rally around, right? Um, even at a small organization, the the labor that a, a founder is putting into a business is often going to be a relatively small proportion of the of the work that's done, right? Um, and so, really, what a founder has to be good at doing or, is getting the best out of everybody on his team, right? That's mm-hmm. the that's the biggest impact that they can have, right? Is by uh, bringing the rest of the team up from sixty percent to ninety percent. Right? Because if they just focus on themselves and they try to get themselves up from 90% to 95% right? um, and just focus on how they can improve their efficiency and, 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 and work harder, um, they're getting a relatively incremental improvement right. there. It doesn't right? have as big of an impact. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and a, a big part of that for me is, is how do you create good team dynamics? How do you create... Uh, an environment where your team, number one, especially in China, wants to stay, right? Because finding good people is so difficult, retention is so low, um, that the companies that can get the right people and keep them have a, an enormous advantage. Mm-hmm. So, but why do people stay? Why do people go? They stay because they make friends, because they enjoy where they're working, and they go because they have a conflict with a manager, and that's what pushes people outside of, uh, of an organization, right? Yeah. So um, so it's cultivating that environment, I think, that uh, that really gives um, companies the, the opportunity to grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I've got a few, not so much rapid fire, but just kind of fun questions uh, to, to close out the show. Um, tell me something you believe to be true that almost nobody agrees with you on. Of course, I'm stealing this from uh, Peter Thiel. Hmm. 
Let me think about that. Let's come back to that okay. one after we answer a couple more. It's a tough one. Um, how do you think others would describe you? Let's say colleagues. Um, oh, oh, relatively serious but easygoing, I think. I, I think generally um, my, my colleagues, my team members, they like me. They don't fear me. Um, but uh, we have good conversations. And yeah. I think maybe they think about me a little bit more as an older brother as opposed to a boss. Okay. Um, what excites you and what scares you about, let's say, the next 10 years in the future? Uh, what excites me, um, new technology coming onto the market, new technology that's going to be applied in, in medicine, um, you know, in every sector of the, of the economy mm-hmm. uh, in ways that are going to potentially help a lot of people. Um, I'm a basketball player. I'm really looking forward to the time when I can get my knees replaced you know, and I can keep playing until I'm 50, 60. Uh-huh. Um, hey, maybe that'll be possible. It seems, uh, seems uh, feasible. Um, and what scares me, you know, a bit of the same, right, which is that despite the fact that we see all this new technology coming onto the market, we have more, you know, more slavery in the world, at least in terms of per capita, mm-hmm. uh, not, not in terms of per capita, but in terms of absolute numbers. Yeah. Um, we have a, a tremendous amount of malnourishment. Um, we have now, you know, obviously the potential for viral um, spreading of genetically engineered, um, you know, diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the potential to put uh, atomic material into very small devices and transport it uh, easily without being detected uh, in, in the, you know, in the near term. So I think um, it's, it's kind of both sides of the coin, right, yeah. is that humans are becoming more powerful through our technology. We're not necessarily becoming wiser, right? And so power yeah. without wisdom uh, it's, a, it's a dangerous... It's the age-old yeah. conundrum, right? And I think, you know, technolo- most technologies can be used either way. And, uh, you know, I, I, sh- I share that concern. I just hope that we can collectively evolve quick enough to, to use that new technology responsibly. Um, if you were a superhero, which one would you be? <laughs> you don't have to say why. If I were a superhero... I'm particularly proud of this question. I came up with it today. Yeah, no. you're, the, you're the first to get it. Oh, exciting. <laughs> okay, let's see. I'm trying to think back to my, uh, my middle school years. It's been a while since I played in that realm. Um, yeah, Superman. Superman. He's the most super superhero. He is. He can kind of... Because I was thinking, what would I like to do? No, but everything just, I'd like to do is Not Superman what you would it. want to be. You know, like, which oh, one, would which one would ah. most appropriately represent you? If you, if, if, if you got transmuted into a superhero today i mean could have superman of course you know he's yeah superman uh, unfortunately and this is unfortunate <laughs> it's probably i forget his name but the guy with the long arms on fantastic four uh, on the uh, you know the guy with like the stretch dr octopus the... no no he was uh, he wore all blue oh, oh, oh. right he yeah. was like the guy with the th- you know, he was the, a doctor right he was a doctor i think and his arms would stretch he was he was definitely not a cool superhero <laughs> but uh, on basketball courts that's kind of my role advantageous and, uh, <laughs> and i constantly get compared to like nerdy actors um on different tv shows so right. i think that would probably be the okay one. cool um what's your favorite quote hmm Uh, be the change that you would like to see in the world. Mm-hmm. I think that's an important one because I think we constantly uh, make excuses for our behavior in different ways. 
And we think because our behavior is only occurring one time mm-hmm. and it's so minute that it doesn't affect the world, um, but it's the aggregate of everybody's behavior that makes the world. 100%. Important. Yeah, I think that's fantastic advice. Um, person you admire most? Um, tons of tons of people that I admire. Um, I'm going to go... Uh, Near the top, you know. Yeah, top, yeah, top yeah. five, something like that. Let's see. Well, I'm just going to go, and this is maybe a bit of a cop-out, but uh, with, with my parents on this, uh-huh. and even though they're not, they're not technically one person. Uh-huh. Um, and it, but the reason is that, you know, okay, who you admire, it's like who, who's impacted you, right? So they, they're the ones that have had the most extreme impact, and for two different reasons. My mother is an absolutely terrible decision-maker and uh, is completely disorganized and everything, everything that, you know, <laughs> uh, that, that would did I kill me as a business person. Yeah. Um, but uh, her heart and her empathy are, I think, unparalleled. And so right. it's incredible to see an individual with this much uh, kind of compassion for other people. So mm-hmm. I think that's had a very strong influence. And my father, although also is a, is a pretty decent guy, but he's kind of on the other side where he is uh, you know, very, very organized um, and structured in his, in his thinking and decision-making, mm-hmm. um, which has, on the other hand, you know, kind of had a very strong impact on me in, in, that, in that manner. So I feel like I'm kind of uh, maybe a, a bit in between those where um, – aim very much to try to be empathetic, uh, mm-hmm. even though sometimes not so easy, um, and also to try to be kind of uh, structured and, and organized and uh, and kind of moving forward. Um, so I think they, they're not uh, certainly famous, but um, had you know very strong qualities, I think. That yeah, you see. Uh, I'll have to notch another one on the board for, uh, for family, you know, because that question is kind of like a layup for Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or whatever, but... It's so often the case. I mean, definitely the majority of the times I've asked that question, family has been the response. Mm. And that, you know, that um, that uh, affects me because I, I have to admit I'm pretty shit at keeping in touch with my family. Mm. I'm from Canada, so I, I, I'm uh, pretty pretty bad at keeping in touch with people at home generally. Mm. You know, my my approach was always, you know, like, well, when you're home, be home; when you're away, be away, and you know, connect when you're, when you're together again. But through conversations with people like yourself and, and a few other guests on the podcast recently, starting to kind of think about that differently. And, and with answers like this, you know, I reflect on it and think that would be my answer too. You know, there, there's the people that I admire. And of course, I mean, your family, you know them more intimately than anybody else. I mean, I don't know Steve Jobs. I read his biography and I know he's a bit of a you know, bit of an angry guy, creative genius, you know, a bunch of other stuff, but you don't really know these people, but you do know your family members, you do know your parents, you do know your siblings, and um, it's, it's, it's uplifting to see so many people say that uh, their direct family members are the people that they admire the most, I mean, so that's just nice, you know. Um, okay, advice, three pieces of advice to your 20-year-old self, if you could pick up the phone and speak to young Eric again. Yeah, so 20-year-old, I'd be, uh, I don't know, junior or so in college, I would say number one, um, drop political science, study uh, programming, 
keep up with philosophy. I think that's a good one. Um, number two, uh, start a start a business. Um, doesn't have to make money. Ideally, it does. But uh, start doing something where you have to build something. Find a find a consumer and try to sell it to them and make somebody uh, kind of better off for for your work because I think that's uh, the you know students have time right mm-hmm. I think that's the best use of, of time at that uh, that stage in life um, number three um, smoke less marijuana um, <laughs> like literally that would be that would be one of them because on the one hand I you know I'm a pretty liberal guy and and I think it's a good thing that we're starting to legalize uh, marijuana and. Uh, I think that's going to be good for the gang situation, um, you know, reducing their revenue and so forth and uh, reducing the number of people in prisons. Um, but I also think that um, I, I, I no longer do drugs. I drink very little mm-hmm. and I enjoy life a lot more when I'm, um, you know, when I'm sober. And the reason is that I can do a lot more. I'm healthier, um, you know, et cetera. I just feel much more alive. So I yeah. think that's something I, I wish I had done a bit less of in my younger years. Yeah, I think that's, Again, you know, my, my take on that, I think that's fantastic advice. Um, and I think it's easy when you're younger to get just caught up in, you know, a certain amount of apathy, a certain amount of, you know, social uh, inclusion and, 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 you know, what your peers are doing. Um, and I, I agree. I mean, it's, it's absolute insanity that, that something like marijuana has been illegal and that you can be locked in prison for, for smoking it for so long. I mean, it's 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 representative of some serious problems in in our our global culture and civilization and i applaud the the recent movement toward liberal liberalization of that but um but I, I agree with you as well i think once you get some some time under your belt uh with a, a clear mind you know where you're eating well you're exercising you're engaging in productive behavior that you're also passionate about and that stimulates you, I think you begin to realize, realize like that's the state of mind I want to be in. You know, that's what really gets me off when I'm just firing on all cylinders and I'm like super excited, I'm focused, I'm productive, I'm efficient. Like that's the mind state you, that I think you want to be in. Whereas, you know, as, as, harm, as physiologically harmless as marijuana is, as a behavior as with many other behaviors, they can become detrimental to your life in a variety of ways if they are overdone. Um, so I think yeah, that's, I I think that's great advice. We've never heard it on, on the show before, but I think it, it actually will resonate with a lot of people. Um, three pieces of advice to aspiring entrepreneurs. If you are not sure how you're going to succeed or what you're going to do, um, find a company that you respect and volunteer, right? And if you have a specific skill set, um, you know, offer that skill set. And if you don't, then just offer to hustle and ask them how. Um, but I think a lot of people get into uh, a stage where they feel like I need to, but then the next step is I need to quit my job and start something up. And they don't know quite what they're going to start up, mm-hmm. or if they do have the you know clear idea, they don't know how they're going to succeed. And a lot of them are, are very much headed towards failure, which is okay, but it's very stressful. And so I, I think uh, <clears throat> before you take that enormous leap, volunteer with somebody. Um, you'll number one, you'll learn what it's like to work a lot because you're going to continue working your own job, and you're going to you know start working 20 hours a week for free for somebody else, mm-hmm. um, and you're going to get experience, and and they're going to 
appreciate what you're doing for them. So you're going to build up your network, right, of people that you're helping um, and who will help you in the future. And, uh, and you'll hopefully through that experience get to test some of your ideas, get some insight into what other people are doing, into how a, a company is run. Um, and when you're ready then to, to go uh, make that leap and start your own company, whether it's a month later or a year later, I think you'll be in a much better position. And if I could just jump in on that before I get the other two pieces of advice. Um, I think that's a good idea also because a lot of people kind of look at it as a, a binary decision, like I'm in a job that I hate or I'm in a startup in control of my own destiny. Whereas I think, and as you say, when you make that leap, it can be incredibly stressful. It can be, uh, it can be less rewarding than you initially anticipated. It can be less exciting, blah, blah, blah. But I think if you, if you do as you just recommended and you, you go from whatever you're doing currently and you find a company that you think is interesting, that you want to learn from, that you're passionate about, and you say, you know, you, you do that. You basically offer them, say, I, I'd just like to come and volunteer my services for a period of time. If at the very least you're going to show up in that role and you're going to be enthusiastic, and that goes a long way uh, in a lot of businesses and a lot of corporate cultures and things like that. As you were saying earlier with your motivations between, uh, behind IoT One, if you're, if you're interested in it, you're, just, you're always absorbing it, you're always putting it out there, and that, people notice that. And it, you know, if it never materializes or not as quickly as you would hope to the next step of doing your own thing, at the very least, you've done, you've you've made a very real upgrade in going from job you really dislike to potentially a job that you're much more happy in. You know, and if you can if you can keep kind of making steps like that, that seems like a, a much less stressful and much more natural progression to potentially doing that thing that you really want to do at some point in the future, but having a lot more of experience to back it up, networks in that industry that you want to be in, financial security. So, you know, there's something to be said for making those, those, you know, quote, baby steps, I guess you could call them, rather than just jumping off the deep end all at once. Now, I, uh, there's also cases where you want to jump off the deep, uh, where you do want to jump off, but I think it's, it's definitely something to consider based on what your ambitions are, what industry you're in, what you feel the holes are in your game, what you want to learn prior to, to moving forward with, you know, whatever it is you ultimately want to do. Two other pieces of advice on uh, for entrepreneurs, right? And number two might be more more practically. Uh, how do you decide is is this the time for me to kind of uh, jump off? Am I am I prepared? Um, what am I prepared for? And and that comes back, you know, as I said, to doing some sort of uh, SWOT exercise, some sort of analysis of yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the hard skills that you bring to the game? What are the the soft skills, the personality traits? What type of network do you have? What are your financial resources? Um, and identify gaps, right? Okay, what are, the, what are the different businesses that you might want to start? And then for each of those businesses, based on who you are right now, what gaps are there and how do you fill those gaps? And in some cases, it might be that um, really you're not prepared to start the business that you want to start. And so what you have to do is go in and get that job. Um, at least for a, a, a period of time so that you can build up what you're lacking. Mm-hmm. In some cases, you might be ready to start, but you need to find uh, a, co, a co-founder. You need to find investors that can help you to address those gaps. Um, and sometimes you might only end up owning you know, 10, 20, 30% of the business, but that's fine. It's much better to 
own a smaller percentage of a successful business because you're going to um, uh, you're going to have a better financial return and you're going to uh, have a better kind of skill set or experience return um, than if you own 100% of a business that that fails. Mm-hmm. Um, so do some analysis, do some thought before making that decision. Okay. Um, number number three. Uh, number three uh, maybe especially so in China is, um, I think globally is really spend time thinking about based on technology today, um, the technology that's going to be coming to the market in the next five years. What is what will be possible in the next five years that's not today? Mm-hmm. Um, either because you're going to make it possible because you can you can make it possible, or because somebody else will make it possible and in doing so will create new opportunities. And build your business around that. Don't build your business around an opportunity that you see as as mature today. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you see that as mature today, there's likely a thousand other people that are working on a similar business. You might not know who they are yet, but they're there. And you're entering into a very competitive environment. Yeah. Kind of like anticipating the rate of innovation. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a notable example that sticks out in my mind about just that is... Um, Peter Diamandis talks about this a lot. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Uh, Singular- Singularity University. Uh, he's co- uh, authored a few books, um, but he's also uh, the guy behind the X Prize. Are you familiar mm-hmm. familiar with Peter? Um, and he talks about what you just mentioned uh, in reference to Planetary Resources, which is a company that mm-hmm. they started to mine asteroids. Right. Um, and of course, that can't be done right now. But you know. They argue that based on their, uh, you know, based on the rate of acceleration or the rate, the the exponential rate of technological growth, that that this will eventually be possible. And they're positioning themselves early to put all the work and all the things in place so that when it does become possible, they're the the ones who basically do it. And of course, contributing to that innovation along the way. But that's right. Now, and as I recall, they had. Um kind of stages of how they would generate revenue along that path by developing new technology, commercializing it, and selling it mm-hmm. off as, as they're moving towards this, uh, this goal of mining asteroids. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, once you can mine asteroids, so if this is uh, 30, 40, 50 years in the future, that's not the end of the game either, right? right. Then there's a strategy beyond that, but I guess it's a, yeah. good, uh, it's a good point to reach for. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it, it's a good example of, of yeah. what you were just saying and, and kind of anticipating what's going to be possible in the future and then what can be done now in preparation for that. Um, last four or five questions. These are word association. Well, let me quickly return. You asked me uh, what is one thing right, that right. I... Right, uh, right, that you believe that... Yeah, and I would say... Um, let, me, let me rephrase the question so everyone's please. familiar with it. So tell me something... Oh, no, no. Um, tell me something that you believe to be true that almost nobody agrees with you on. And that's a famous Peter Thiel question. Yeah, and uh, yeah, this is probably uh, a bit of a, uh, of a cop-out because maybe a lot of, you know, a certain group of people do, do believe with me uh, this, uh, or do believe uh, the same. But um, I quite firmly believe that the, the Chinese government uh, as structured is, is probably the best uh, kind of uh, the best situation for China right now, mm-hmm. um, and that it would be quite detrimental to try to um, uh, implement strong democratic reforms mm-hmm. um, at this at this stage in China. Um, that doesn't mean that I think that everything is, is, is great in the current bureaucracy. I think 
there's a lot of uh, room for improvement, but I think that room for improvement is mostly in um, in institutions right now as opposed to in how leaders are, are appointed. Yeah. And I, I think maybe more people will, will agree with me after um, kind of seeing how the democratic process is rolling out in America I right now. I was just going right? to bring that because up. Because can you imagine <laughs> if there were, you know, a billion dollars being spent in China yeah. and anybody was up for a vote, um, it would be um, – it would be well, similar to India, extremely corrupt and, and inefficient, mm-hmm. and you would have um, very le- very little kind of uh, stability in terms of policy direction. Um, so, yeah, some people do believe with me, uh, that, you know, uh, the same. But I think most Americans, in any case, probably feel like uh, democracy uh, is the best uh, situation in in almost all, uh, or is the best kind of form of government in almost all situations. I think that is. Um, probably not the case in China right now. Yeah, I, I you know, when you I, when you said that, I, I thought exactly about what you just mentioned in terms of the uh, the the process that's un, that's underway in the the U.S. right now in the the you know the debates between candidates of both parties to see who's going to get the nomination and and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not going to open up the bag of worms of communism versus capitalism or democracy, but you know, if you look at it just on the surface, I think it's difficult to disagree with you because you look in in China and there's so little like flair and pomp around political figures. It's what's the plan? This is the plan. Start tomorrow. You know, and, and things are, are done methodically like that. And and resources, both time, attention, financial, energetic, are directed towards those ends. Whereas you know, I look at now you turn on Fox, CNN, uh, and covering what's going on in the States, and so much money and time and energy is put into this process, and it's such a farce. I mean, it's just people saying things that, you know, you know picking on really easy to, uh, really, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, topics that are as sound bites. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a game show. Easy, yeah, it's a game show. And you, you, you throw up this topic. Mm-hmm. Okay, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? And each mm-hmm. one is, a, is appealing to a very low common denominator sort of portion of the electorate. And everybody gets so riled up. And I just think, what, a, what an enormous waste of, of time and resources. Like why this, this time, this, these resources could be devoted to addressing some of the very real problems that the U.S. economy and the U.S. social system is encountering right now. But instead, it's, it's, it's by default handed to, or it's, the system defaults to saying, oh, no, we just need to figure out which, you know, who wins the popularity contest, and then things will be okay or, or something. It's, it's hard to watch. And I, I have to say, I, something popped up on my Facebook feed recently and it was a a donald trump rally and i mean that whole story is i mean i i actually can't believe in 2016 that this is what's happening you know in the electoral process of the most powerful nation in the world i mean it's scary to me really but the the donald trump was having some form of a rally and it was like very very young girls dressed up in like the red white and blue flag sort of skirts and they were singing a song before Trump came out, and it was the like it was horrifying to me because the song was like you know talking about 
you know, loving freedom and beating terror. And like, it was, I'll, 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 I don't know if you've seen it, but I'll, I'll have to send you a link to it. Cause it was, it was, it, it was upsetting, mm. but, um, moving on. Okay. So last couple of questions are just word association. So you don't have to think just whatever pops to your head. Okay. Shanghai. One word answers, by the way. Cement. <laughs> IOT. Ubiquitous. Entrepreneurs. Hungry. Stress. Okay. Okay. That's okay. Triumph. Also okay. <laughs> it's kind Fair of enough. Um, Eric, thank you very much for, for taking the time on uh, what I'm sure was supposed to be CNY holiday for you, but I appreciate you coming in and, and giving me the time. Is there any information, websites, emails, social media that you want to put out there for people that maybe can interact with you or IoT or, or IoT One or anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would say certainly www.iot1.com. Uh, check out the website. Uh, keep in mind it's it's beta. If anybody has input on how to improve the site, very, very open. Um, anybody can find me on LinkedIn. My, I'm pretty sure I'm the only Eric Walenza-slave <laughs> on uh, LinkedIn, so track me down, um, and uh, we'll, we'll get in touch. And I'm, uh, I'm very open to having conversations. So if anybody wants to reach out and schedule a call, I'll be there. Awesome. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And we will see you all next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Tech in Shanghai podcast. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Tech in Shanghai for everything tech from Shanghai and China. See you next time.